from KCRW. I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. When director Gareth Edwards pitched his science fiction thriller The Creator to Disney, executives at the studio were baffled by the idea of artificial intelligence posing a threat to humanity. The simple explanation was like something terrible has happened in America. And as a result, the West has completely banned AI, like it's completely outlawed. And the big note I always kept getting back from the studio was, but why would you ban AI? They're not asking you anymore. <laughs> Gareth Edwards talks about releasing a dystopian film centered on artificial intelligence in the midst of heated industry battles on the same topic. And he addresses the behind-the-scenes drama he faced as director on the troubled Star Wars movie Rogue One. He also explains why he shot the creator with a camera that you could buy at your neighborhood electronics store. But first we banter. Stick around. It's the business from KCRW. I am joined by my partner in banter, Matt Bellany. Hello, Matt. Hi there. So finally, I'm very pleased, and I'm sure everybody who can hear this and more is very pleased that the writer's strike is over. The deal that they made with the studios still has to be ratified, but it looks like a pretty good deal. And I will just mention, you know, referencing a piece I did on how this deal got done. You know, they were at this impasse where they were trading accusations that, you know, you owe us a call. No, you owe us a call. And as we understand it, finally, Chris Kaiser, who's co-head of the negotiating committee for the Guild, called Bob Iger. This would have been on September 10th. And basically, they had a long and very frank, I am told, conversation. And the gist was, we have to get people back to work. We can't keep trading questions about you owe us a call. No, you owe us a call. So I will note there were four executives in the room, Donna Langley from NBC Universal, of course, Bob Iger, Ted Sarandos from Netflix, and David Zaslav, of course, from Warner Brothers Discovery. And it was a very slow process, I think. Uh, went through the weekend, back and forth. They stayed in the room. And one of the things that uh, Chris Kaiser and Bob Iger agreed was that the executives would stay in the room, as would the Guild, until a deal was done. And then, as you well know, Matt, everybody was on tender hooks for a few days. And finally, Sunday evening, we got the word that this deal had happened. Right. So now the question is, what's in the deal? And we finally got answers. And if you look at it from a perspective of what was offered on May 1st when the Guild decided to strike and what is in this deal, it's an interesting analysis because some of the terms like the wage increases, they got 5%, um, the foreign residuals went way up, the domestic residual went up. Those are things that the Directors Guild also got in their negotiation without going on strike. So those are great. You know, they got them. But I'm more interested in the stuff that they achieved by going on strike. Right. There were obviously three major issues that were sticking points. There was a question of the size of writers' rooms question of AI, which was the last issue resolved, and the question of transparency from the streamers, like, show me how the show did and pay me. And they kind of got a half a loaf on that one, but it seems like they did very well overall. Yeah, so let's take them one by one. Let's start with the minimum staffing issue. The ultimate agreement was that depending on the number of episodes for the show, there will be anywhere between three and six writers that are required to be hired for that show. There is a carve out for shows that are all episodes are written by one person. That's sort of yeah, the Mike White. The, yeah, the, the Mike White Sheridan. Taylor Sheridan rule. <laughs> right. And those are carved out so they don't have to be forced to hire writers when they don't want to hire them. 
But that's pretty good. It's not as many writers as the Guild wanted to have required. But there's an additional element here where writer-producers are also required to be hired throughout the process. And that was something that the negotiating committee really wanted because they say it's a path to training. It's giving these writers the experience to someday become showrunners themselves and to keep this a healthy, thriving business when you have training on the job. And the studios were saying, no, we don't want to be required to have people on the clock, essentially, during production. So that's a big win. And I will note that on some of these issues, they have a foot in the door. You know, they may not have gotten exactly the numbers that they wanted or whatever, but this is a subject that can be bargained over in the future. And they have created a precedent that gives them, as I say, a foot in the door. Right. So let's look at AI. On AI, they got the guarantee that their work would not be used or that they would not be given AI-generated materials in a way that might reduce their credit and payment on a movie or a show. And that is a good guarantee. Where the studios got them to punt, however, was that they wanted that their work would not be used to train AI language models. And where they compromised there is the Guild reserved the right to challenge that in the future, but did not get any assurances right now that for the next three years, the studios won't train language models with their work. So that is a compromise. But generally speaking, on the AI issue, they got what they wanted in the sense that they are not going to be replaced by AI and not going to be forced to adapt AI materials in a way that would reduce their credits. They also have the ability to use AI if they want to, subject to the studio's consent. Yeah, and I think a lot of writers feel like they did way better on this one than the directors who only got like, we'll talk about it in the future. All right, so let's move on to the transparency issue because this one is interesting, and we've been talking about this for years. They got a agreement from the studios that if a show is watched by 20% of a streaming services audience in the first 90 days, there will be a new performance-based or additive bonus that you will get that should account for the consumption of your show. It's essentially a hit bonus. If you have a hit, you will get more in residuals. And it's not much more. It's, you know, I've heard estimates where it's only really going to add two to four, maybe five million dollars to the studio's expenditures for the year. But like you said, this is a foot in the door. This is a new residual that did not exist in the past and is tied to consumption of content, which I think is a big deal. Now, there's a caveat here because the data that they are turning over to create this bonus is going to the Guild. The Guild has to keep it in confidence. It's not like we're going to see streaming charts every week like we would you know, if they had to disclose this to the public. And the Guild can only disclose it to their members in the aggregate. So it's not going to be something like, you know, this show was viewed by how many people and we're going to see headlines in the trades about that. So I think it's a win getting this established, but it's not the you know full open up everything to scrutiny that some of us might have desired. Well, yes, we all want to know everything in the press, uh, but we do the best we can with what we are given. Turning to SAG-AFTRA now, uh, you know, I think that the next thing, obviously, is to get that done, because Hollywood will not be fully back to work until it is, and also... This is awards season. The stars have not been able to promote anything. We felt that at some of these film festivals where they were absent. So I would think the studios want to hurry this along and have maybe given some thought to what they'll be offering SAG-AFTRA. 
Yeah, and I have heard that there has been back-channeling going on between the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA during this entire Writers Guild process. So the goal is that the actors will be able to piggyback on some of the gains that have been made and use it as a template to hopefully get the actors deal done pretty quickly and get back to production by Thanksgiving, Christmas, around the holidays. Yeah, it isn't usually the Writers Guild that sets the template. It's usually the Writers Guild that, you know, the last time they were the last one that didn't make a deal, the last strike, and were sort of isolated with the other guilds having made their deals. So this time the writers, they fought, they fought hard. They had a lot of solidarity with each other and with SAG-AFTRA, a lot of discipline. And uh, yeah, and this time they're setting more of a pattern than has historically been the case. And that's not what the studio side wants in these situations because the Writers Guild is known as the most aggressive of all the guilds. So if they're setting the tone, then that means that something has gone wrong for the studios. (laughs) Well, we'll give the directors partial credit for the pattern on compensation. They usually are the easiest ones to make a deal with. So this time, uh, yes, the studios got stuck with the toughest ones and the actors may very well benefit from that. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News. It's been seven years since Gareth Edwards released his last film, the Star Wars anthology installment, Rogue One. That production faced a number of setbacks, including rewrites and extensive reshoots. Screenwriter Tony Gilroy was said to have taken over the film, which he later described as a mess that was in terrible trouble before he got involved. Edwards resisted commenting on the situation for years, but he addresses it now. Of course, he'd rather talk about his latest project, The Creator. The dystopian thriller is set in the aftermath of a devastating nuclear explosion. Countries in the East and West are divided on the use of artificial intelligence, so much so that war has broken out. John David Washington plays Joshua, an ex-Special Forces agent who is reluctantly drawn into the conflict. He is soon accompanied by Alfie, who appears to be a child but is actually a robot. With danger all around, she asks Joshua a pertinent question. Are you going to heaven? No. You gotta be a good person to go to heaven. So, we're the same. We can't go to heaven because you're not good. And I'm not a person. First of all, I have to say, talk about timing. (laughs) You couldn't have imagined that we would be in the midst of an AI epic intergalactic war right now. (laughs) When you started this, I mean, but your timing is amazing, right? Um, I'd love to take full credit for that. Yeah. But um, it was 2018, I think, when I first typed the first words into a laptop for this movie um, in terms of writing the script. And back then, AI was like writing a film about flying cars, you know, or living on the moon or something. It felt like a science fiction idea that maybe could happen in our lifetime, but also might not. Like, I really wasn't expecting it to turn up. And I was kind of using it as a device, like a fairy tale device, like um, people who are different to us, like the other. Mm-hmm. Um and and kind of creating a story about that kind of concept. But when you pick AI as your subject matter and you start to explore it, there's this very interesting philosophical dilemmas kind of float to the surface really quickly. Like, are they really alive? You know, how would you ever know? Does it matter? And what happens if they do things you 
disagree with? Can you turn them off? What if they don't want to be turned off and all these sort of things? And, and that started to overtake the original thought behind the film. And we were filming in the jungles of Thailand. And what happens when you're directing a movie, no matter how much you plan everything, it's always a scramble because things change. And so every day on the way to set, no matter what you're doing, you're just, I'm trying to like storyboard and shot list everything we're going to do that day like it's always a mad rush in the and the van is the one thirty minutes i have on the way to set where i'm being left alone and i shouldn't have done it but i looked at my phone and a message <laughs> came up and it was a link to a story the the google whistleblower story about one of the engineers who had basically posted the a transcript of a conversation it had with their ai mm-hmm. um, where he felt it was completely sentient and I got sucked in and ended up the whole of this journey, just read the entire conversation. And by the end, I was as confused as he was because it was like, <laughs> this this stuff feels alive. Like, how can something say those words and there's no one inside? Like, it felt such a human, like, yes. empathetic response. And and I really thought, oh, my God, we're kind of, I guess we're kind of onto something with this movie. Yeah. I mean, it could cut in various ways, right? It's been framed in this particular battle with the strikes ongoing as potentially, well, and beyond that, obviously, because we have all kinds of people's warning, all kinds of experts. It's been turned into something pretty terrifying. So people will not walk into this film with the same mindset they would have had, you know, five years ago or two, one year ago, even, right? Yeah, well, that's what's sort of interesting is that when I pitched the film to the studio at the very beginning, the simple explanation was like something terrible has happened in America that was blamed on AI. Um, mm-hmm. As a result, the West has completely banned AI, like it's completely outlawed. And But in Asia, in the East, like there's no such problem and they keep developing it to the point where it's nearly human-like. And so there's this war going on, you know, and that's kind of like the basics of the world that the movie starts in. And the big note I always kept getting back from the studio was, but why would you ban AI? And <laughs> they're still asking this question. Yeah. <laughs> they're not asking it anymore. <laughs> right, but, it, but it was like, but it's so, so like the start of our movie, that can anything away to anyone because I really enjoy it. But the sort of first five minutes of our film is setting this idea up of why AI might be not the greatest thing in the world. And it's sort of interesting watching it now over the last few months, what's happened in the media, because you're sort of preaching to the choir now. Like people, I think, are coming in with a default setting of like AI is bad which is kind of useful for the journey of our film, I think. Let me roll back. You won a contest now years ago, and the prize in that contest, I think, was that you got to, were you given like $500,000 to make a small film? Am I, am I screwing that up? Is that correct? That would have been an amazing contest. Oh, there was no $500,000 prize. Okay. Well, it, it did lead to $500,000 right, right. in a kind of weird way, but it was basically my background. Like I always wanted to be a filmmaker, but my background... I ended up getting into visual effects, like in computer graphics, basically, because I went to film school in 1993 and Jurassic Park just came out in the cinema and it was clearly going to be the future of filmmaking. And so when I graduated, I ended up buying a computer and just learning this animation software and got massively sidetracked just doing visual effects from home for people like BBC and Discovery Channel and things like that. And I kept putting off. I kept always saying that six months from now, that's when I'd stop doing this. And I'll use all these skills and I'll go make some sort of sci-fi movie or something. And six months kept coming and going. And eventually I spent 10 years doing this. And then suddenly this, someone had invented this special lens because no matter what you did, when you have no money to make a film, if you film it on video back then, 
it just looked cheap. You know what I mean? Like you had to do like the Blair Witch approach. Right. Uh, something like that. It just didn't look cinematic and epic or anything. And then someone invented this lens that you could, you know, essentially put on the front of a video camera and it kind of looked like a film camera. And it was just the most amazing thing in the world. I bought one and it just so happened that weekend there was this 48-hour film challenge where you essentially have to make a film in two days. They give you the title, a prop, and a line of dialogue that you have to include in your short. And then you turn up literally 48 hours later with the final film. And I was very lucky we ended up winning that. But what was weird is I was more proud of those two days of work than I was the previous like 10 years mm. because we were so rushed and we couldn't plan anything. I had to sort of improvise our way through this little filmmaking you know, exercise. And I felt like you could go make them like the promise of all this digital technology for so long was some kids in their bedroom or their garage can go make Star Wars one day. You know, you don't have to have $200 million. And I just got really excited about racing all the other kids in their garage and trying to be that person. Shot the movie for, I think, about 250 grand. And we went to like Belize, Costa Rica, Guatemala, and Mexico and shot this kind of monster movie thing. And it was how we thought a film should be made rather than like how they're supposed to be made. And I had one of the most creative experiences of my life. I found it really rewarding. And then that did well at festivals. And I got teleported to the Super Bowl final and got to do like this big Godzilla movie and yes. then eventually Star Wars. And so it was, it's kind of surreal. We've seen, you know, a pattern of people coming off of a small film that's really creative and innovative and sometimes given things that are so big that maybe they haven't had time to be prepared for the kind of incredible operation of a huge movie. And I, I won't name a name because this person's agent begged me never to say the name again. But I'm thinking of a particular director who went completely off the rails in that way. Having experienced it yourself, did you feel like it was a little too much too soon? Or did you think, yeah, I got this? No, it was, yeah, no, I think Obviously, you go in with a little bit of arrogance, I guess, or overconfidence. But I think the problem slightly is with these things is that I think the process of making a film, like the way in which you like to work or how you make a movie is equally important. And you could argue it's more important than the actual concept or script or idea or whatever. Like if someone said you can have total creative control and completely decide how you shoot this, how it all works, but it's like a seven out of 10 script. Or here's a 10 out of 10 script, but you've got to do it through the Hollywood machine. I'd say I'll take the 7 out of 10 and have control, you know. And so I think what happens to a lot of people is they get taken because people see like promise in them and see the talent, but they just take them and nothing else. And then they plonk them in the middle of this completely different environment and completely different process and surround them like to the point where it's all goodwill. Everyone wants the movie to be great, but whatever it was that made that film special that made you pick them, like you've kind of removed the things about it that made it great. And you've mm -hmm. took them over here. Like when you pick up someone who makes little steak, you know, lovely little filet mignon things, and then you go and put them in a sausage factory, it's <laughs> going to turn out like a sausage. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and so I think that's the issue is when you pick up these filmmakers and you put them in these amazing situations, it's like asking them what they need and what was it that about that, what you loved about that film you saw and how to recreate that in this other big movie. I mean, I hadn't, basically this is my first film back out for seven years because yes. it was so important to me that I got to build the machine. 
mm-hmm. and decide like we tried to make this film the way that made sense to us because then the outcome it's going to be more on target to how you picture in the movie in your head if that makes sense yes uh we're leading up to the inevitable Star Wars question. Let me frame it like this. (laughs) I read that you wanted to get into this business because of Star Wars. And then, of course, on Rogue One, there was trouble. And ultimately, Tony Gilroy seemed to be reshooting for five weeks and going public with some comments about what a bad situation they were in before he got there. And then I read somewhere where you said maybe someday I will talk about this. (laughs) And I was hoping that someday would be today. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's just, I I don't like, okay, so the stuff that's out there on the internet about what happened on that film, like there's so much inaccuracy about the whole thing. And Tony came in and he did a lot of great work for sure, no doubt about it. But we all worked together till the entire, like last minute of that movie, Like the very last thing that we filmed in the pickup shoot was the Darth Vader corridor scene, which, you know, I I did all that stuff. And and so it's always a team effort making a movie, especially a big, giant movie like that. And someone who gets that opportunity to make a Star Wars film and then starts complaining about it. Mm. Like, I don't think many people have much empathy for that kind of person. So I don't want to be them. Um, It was a dream come true. I'm proud of the movie we all made. It's very difficult to make even a film, let alone something people might like. And so, you know, what goes in Fight Club stays in Fight Club kind of thing, you know. (laughs) It's like that. And so I just want to sound grateful for what happened and not talk negatively about anything. Coming up after the break, Gareth Edwards talks about the original title of The Creator and why Disney changed it. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. In his new science fiction thriller, The Creator, writer-director Gareth Edwards explores whether artificial intelligence has the capacity to feel emotions. John David Washington plays Joshua, an ex-Special Forces agent who finds himself on the run with a robot, or sim as he calls it, as in simulation. The sim appears to be a child, and while her intelligence may be artificial, at first she acts a lot like a bulky human child who's been warned not to trust strangers. Come on, little sim, get in the car. Hey, it'll be fun. Like cartoons, it'll be be fun, okay? It's like a game. Hide and seek. I'll drive fast. All right, let's go. (laughs) Right? Come on. This is hella fun. This is why don't you want to get in the car? It's a lot of fun. Get in the damn car. Let's go back to the creator. That is a movie that was done by Regency, but I guess marketed by Disney, right? Did they change the name? Because I think initially the name of the movie was True Love, which having seen the movie, 
you understand why. But on the other hand, I've seen where you've understood, at least, whether it was whoever's idea this was, that people might think it's a rom-com. Although if they saw the materials, I don't think they would necessarily think that. Yeah, I mean, you essentially just summed it up, which was the movie was always, like when I wrote it, it was called True Love. For reasons that make sense after you've seen it. I mean, and we kept experiencing this issue where when people went in before they'd seen it, they didn't understand the title and their preconceptions about the film were completely off. Right. And when they came out, they said, oh, it totally makes sense. But our problem is we have to get people in, you know, into the cinema. And essentially they do all this marketing research and they mocked up posters with all, you know, lots of options on it. Mm-hmm. And people were just not wanting to see that film called True Love, even though it, once you've seen the movie, it makes a lot of sense. And so the strongest idea you know, that we had was the, the creator without spoiling it for people. What's funny is Oren, the DOP on the movie, um, got a tattoo of uh, True Love. And so <laughs> no. he, he's, he, I had to break it to him that it's, it's not called that anymore. But he's proud of that. He's like, that makes it even better story when people ask me. So Now I'm going to ask you a question that's very out of character for me because it's a technical filmmaking kind of question, which I admit up front, I don't know anything about. But you were using this Sony camera and mm-hmm. kind of guerrilla filmmaking techniques with this. I read 80 locations around the world. And this camera enabled you to be very nimble in a way that would save a ton of money, I think, and not have to re-establish sets with new lighting and so forth and so on. Maybe you're going to explain this better than me. Oh, I don't know if I will, actually. But um, yeah, so it was essentially, it doesn't really matter what the camera was called. It will change next year to a new camera. That will be the Mm -hmm. best one for this. But it was an FX3, a Sony FX3. And that is the camera that, you know, to be all honest, you can go into Best Buy and buy that camera. Um, If you look at the prosumer market is growing and becoming better at an incredible pace. So if you imagine like, so when we did Rogue One, we had drones on that shoot and they were like mini helicopters and one of them crashed. It was a little bit dangerous. And so we was told we can't use any more drones on the movie. Up to a couple of years later and there's these drones that can fit in your pocket and shoot at 4K cinema resolution. And like the technology has just come on leaps and bounds. It's pretty incredible. And and there's innovation happening in the what you call the prosumer, like the sort of professional, but like consumer professional market, because they've got nothing to lose. And so they're taking these big swings technologically at camera equipment because they're trying to reach the, you know, hit the guys off the top. So for instance, our camera, um, I don't know if you remember, but when there was film in a camera, you normally would buy it with, it would be called 100 ISO or maybe 200 ISO, depending on if it was sunny outside. If you were inside a house and it was dark, you might go up to 800 ISO. Like that was like, oh, I'm buying a film for like very dark conditions. This camera can film at 12,800 ISO. So it can film under moonlight and you can still see an image. And so it's incredibly sensitive and you can't get that in the higher end cameras. Like this is just something the prosumer cameras are doing because they're just trying, you know, to like disrupt the playing field a little bit. And so this amazing camera came out that does this. And as soon as you have a very sensitive camera like that, suddenly lots of other interesting things can happen. Like normally on a movie set, you have to have these giant lights that are like giant trucks, you know, generating electricity for these. And there are massive cranes and stuff everywhere. 
And if you want to move the camera to the right, you have to move all the trucks. So filming becomes this quite laborious thing of like you point in one direction, shoot for half an hour or so, and then you wait 20 minutes as everyone moves the lights and you shoot in another direction. And that's kind of typical filmmaking. And with these new cameras, and you're all familiar with it at home and even in your iPhone, LED lights, like battery operated LED lights become really bright, you know, and need very little electricity or power. And so what you have now is film lights that are just on small batteries and they're so lightweight that you can hold them like all day long. And so we were like, well, instead of having constantly have stands everywhere, why don't we have just like you have the sound guy holding a big, long pole with a microphone on it? Why can't we have like the lighting guys holding poles with lights on them? And then as the camera moves around, they quickly move around. And so we tried it and it worked really well. And so we would do takes, you know, normally you do a little take and then you say cut, but we would do like 25 minute takes where we would play through the scene like 10 times. And the actors had all this freedom to go anywhere they wanted. And I would move with the camera and the lights would move really quickly. And, you know, I didn't want to put marks on the ground and say, you walk here and you say this line. I wanted it to be a bit free for all, a bit more sort of like a documentary at times, you know. This movie is obviously a science fiction movie and an action movie and um, a lot of effects. I read that you had said that there were quite a number of movies that inspired you for this movie, the creator. Blade Runner, I got, <laughs> but you right. also said Paper Moon and Rain Man. And I have to ask you, I sort of thought, okay, I'm thinking about both of those movies and I'm not quite seeing it. <laughs> is it because in Rain Man, the character of Raymond is the other outsider? Is that what made you say that? Yeah, it's essentially, they're a bit different, but say Rain Man is the journey of, well, they actually happen to be related brothers, right? But the journey of two people who are kind of polar opposites. And one of them is obviously, you know, autistic. So he's lacking some of the qualities that Tom Cruise has, you know. Yeah, a lot of people lack the qualities that Tom Cruise has, but go on. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. But, and so there's like this weird, interesting, like it's a very extreme dynamic that's really interesting where there's a lot of friction, a lot of antagonism from Tom Cruise to his, to, to like Dustin Hoffman for most of that film. And, but there's these beats, basically they go from, and I can't get into this in too much detail because I don't want to spoil what happens yes, in the film. don't spoil, no spoilers. But essentially... The story beats, you know, there's a lot to learn from that kind of movie in terms of two people in a relationship on a journey, a road movie of mm -hmm. sorts, where they're at polar opposites and want totally separate things. And Paper Moon, they never actually say it out loud, but there's a moment where it's clear, but they never fully go there where it's father-child sort of dynamic. And again, like total, like it's the last person in the world he wants to be with is this little girl it's kind of and then he just it's like they've got to deal with each other because they both the, the one thing they have in common is they've got to get to this place together mm -hmm. those sort of road movie odd couple you know dynamics would were, were definitely i do feel is appropriate for our film in a way without getting into too much detail well, now I feel kind of dumb that I didn't see it myself, because <laughs> now that you say it, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> Gareth Edwards produced, wrote, and directed The Creator. The film is now in theaters everywhere. You are here, I should note, as the director and not as a writer, right? Of course, yeah. <laughs> as a yeah. director. Thanks for doing the show. Thank you. 
And that's the business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program with help this week from John Meek, who mixed the show. You can stream the business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next week on The Business.